Welcome to Counterpunch Radio. My name is Eric Dreitzer. Thanks so much for tuning in. Coming back to the show, first-time listeners finding the show, welcome aboard. It's been a while since I've been able to put out these podcasts. Let me give a quick explanation of that. A lot has happened on my end in my little corner of the world. My wife and I welcomed our second child into the world a few months ago, and there have been a number of fairly complicated health issues related to that that we've been working through. And so it's been kind of a uh, interesting few months that has made it a bit difficult to do the scheduling and the recording and the editing and all of those other things. But we are here. We are now recording, hopefully in a new studio with new equipment. It's all snazzy. It's all nice. And hopefully it's going to sound nice and hopefully you're going to enjoy it. So um, I'm just going to make my usual little appeal for Counterpunch. Counterpunch is one of the last magazines out there. I mean, we are still printing on paper. We're also putting content out every single day on the website. If you appreciate these perspectives from the left, progressive, socialist, communist, anarchist, all the different flavors of the left, please do consider becoming a subscriber to Counterpunch. You can get yourself a subscription to the print magazine. You can do that through the website. You can do that on the phone, by mail, carrier pigeons, all sorts of ways to do that. You can also just make a quick donation. We greatly appreciate that as well. So let me uh, welcome my guest to the show today. Uh, I'm happy to have him back. He's a returning guest, someone whose work I really, really do respect. Jason Stanley is with me. Jason is a professor of philosophy at Yale. Uh, Probably most specifically, if you're a regular listener of this show, you remember him from a number of episodes back when we talked about his 2018 book, How Fascism Works, The Politics of Us and Them. Absolute must read. I Very few books that I could recommend more highly than that one. It's eminently readable. It's so important and timely. So please do get a copy of that. You can also follow him on Twitter. I highly recommend that. I believe it's Jason underscore Intrator, but we will uh, confirm that. Um, Jason, welcome back to Counterpunch Radio. Thank you so much, Eric. Very happy to have you back and to talk about these issues. I mean, fascism is a word that's on so many lips these days, but it is nebulous in so many ways. So let's begin right there. Your 2018 book, How Fascism Works, The Politics of Us and Them, which was widely regarded as a really important work of a few years ago, goes into what fascism is. And I think that's a great place for us to start in talking about a lot of these issues. So, Jason, can you help us define the word fascism and how it's generally used, how you use it, any differences? So we're seeing fascism become much less amorphous as the years progress across the world, not just in the United States. So while I published my book in 2018 and and wrote it in 2017, I think people are a lot more familiar right now with the phenomena that that it describes there. And it's coming into form how worrisome the culture uh, that the political culture that we're experiencing is. So let me break down quickly uh, without going into the 10 part definition I give in how fascism works, uh, the essence of fascism. Fascism is based on a friend enemy distinction. Uh, the basis of politics is uh, you define yourself by raising hysterical fear about the enemy. The enemy, you, you can take Martin Niemöller's poem as a, go, a famous poem, uh, First They Came For, as a good uh, intro to fasci- to the friend-enemy distinction that is at the basis of fascism. Uh, it goes as follows. First they came for the communists, but I was not a communist, so I said nothing. Then they came for the trade unionists, but I was not a trade unionist, so I said nothing. Then they came for the Jews, but I was not a Jew, 
So I said nothing. Then they came for me and there was no one left to speak. So from that poem, you learn about the enemy of fascism, leftists, communists and socialists, leftists. So fascists raise panic about socialists. You know, they say, you need a strong hand to protect you from the communists and socialists. Secondly, trade unions. They attack trade unions because trade unions empower workers. And, and fascism works by telling the, the powerful industrial concerns, you line up behind us and we'll do your work for you. If you support fascism, we'll get your agenda done. And that includes breaking down trade unions that centrally. And third, then they came for the Jews, minorities. Fascism needs a, a target, a, a hated minority group. And so it ba it's based around this friend-enemy distinction uh, where the enemy are leftists, liberals, communists, uh, and, uh, and, and those who seek to challenge power by mass class movements uh, and uh, hated minority groups. So fascism bases itself around an ethnic conception, an ethnic or perhaps also religious, uh, is possible too, conception of the nation, of the friends. The friends are the people like us, and the people like us are the people who share our skin color, share our religion, in the case of America, white Christian nationalism. Indeed. And of course, that's so relevant today. And you were just here in New York yesterday. Unfortunately, I missed the event, but you were here at NYU talking about uh, fascism as a social kind. And I think that's also an interesting entry point to this subject. So can you explain a little bit what you what you talked about in your talk here in New York City and what you mean by fascism as a social kind? So it was an academic paper I gave in the European Studies Center at NYU. Uh, and in that paper, uh, I'm justifying my use of the term fascism and the category of fascism as a name for what we see for the movements of figures such as like Bolsonaro in Brazil, Modi in India, Orban in Hungary, Donald Trump in the United States, uh, and other figures, so Sweden Democrats in Sweden. So I'm just, you, you have this interlocked series of movements all over the world right now. Um, Hyper-nationalists, patriarchal, hyper-capitalist. Uh, they have a complex, a vexed relationship with the truth, <laughs> to say the least. Uh, and, uh, and, and my goal in the paper was to justify the claim that the best term for them is fascism. Uh, so, uh, so, and to take on the challenges that have emerged since my 2018 book. Uh, one thing I do in the paper is I emphasize that if we spend too long worrying about who is a fascist, people say, oh, Trump isn't a fascist. He doesn't himself care. He just wants money. Uh, you know, he's just an opportunist. If, if we think too much about people, who, whether people are fascist, uh, we, we sort of, that will, that will, almost intentionally lead us away from the important questions. The important question is, as Toni Morrison puts it in her 1995 speak, commencement speech at Howard, racism and fascism. As she puts it, the United States 
has all too often sought fascist solutions to national problems. So instead of talking about who's a fascist, is Donald Trump a fascist in his heart? It, that's like an irrelevant conversation that brings us away from what's important. The important thing is, are we looking for fascist solutions to national problems? Are, are there fascist forces at work? Is our politics, is the political mood moving from a democratic political mood to a fascist political mood, where your opponent is an evil enemy, where, where you, you suggest, as Goebbels said, uh, as, uh, as Goebbels suggested to the Nazi party, that, uh, that your opponent, whoever they are, is a socialist or communist out to steal their house, your house, as Goebbels said, the bourgeoisie will not run into our arms unless we can convince them that the Bolsheviks are right around the corner to steal their houses. In other words, fascism requires this th socialist or communist enemy that you need a strong person to protect you from. So the question is, are we, are we looking at fascist solutions to national problems? Is the political discourse, are the forces that are at work and the culture that's at work a fascist political culture? And in the paper, I argue yes, and I take on some, uh, so I, and I argue that certain things like white supremacy uh, or authoritarianism or patriarchy, these are features of fascism, but if we focus on one of them, we lose sight of the fact that the overall structure we're facing around the world today is fascism. Uh, if we focus on white supremacy, we'll miss the fact that in India, Modi is changing the the citizenship laws to privilege one group of brown-skinned people, namely uh, Hindus. Uh, so, uh, so it's not a or it, or in Israel, we have uh, one of the historical targets of fascism. Uh, 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 my fellow Jewish people, and in, in Israel is founded after the Holocaust, and yet. You know, there are fascist political forces at work dividing Israelis and Palestinians. So uh, so if we focus on white supremacy, we'll miss the international nature of what we face today. So before we take a break, I want to push a little bit back on that explanation, not because I disagree with it, but because I think a common uh, a common criticism, not only of your work, but of others who have taken on similar subject is that the uh, the attempt to describe fascism through its cultural expressions is misguided because it doesn't speak to the actual nature of fascism, which is rooted in capital, in the movements of capital, in the imperatives of capital, etc. Can you can you speak a little bit to the sort of I don't want to say Marxist because that's not appropriate, but but the more the the more capital centric explanation of fascism and how yours maybe differs or is similar. It's it it's perfectly appropriate to call it Marxist. It's the Marxist conception of fascism. The Marxist conception of fascism is uh, is uh, and and the, uh, the Marxist conception of fascism views it as an ideology financed by. Uh, uh, propped up by finance capital uh, that uses ethno-nationalism to enlist the support of the working class uh, behind someone who ultimately does not have their interests at all at, uh, in mind. 
Uh, so the Marxist conception of fascism says it's it's multinational finance capital that seeks to bring the worker away from unions, bring the worker away from cross-racial uh, coalitions uh, that unions at their best are, uh, and instead seeks to ally themselves, uh, seeks to ally, the poor, say, the poor white working class in America with rich billionaires uh, because they share the same skin color. So that is the Marxist conception of fascism, and it's the one that I defend. And I argue in the book that, I mean, in, in the paper I gave, I argue that it's what we find in Du Bois's 1935 book, Black Reconstruction. I mean, I'm a very patriotic American, so I like to argue that America is responsible for a lot of things. And as you know, since you've read How Fascism Works, I base fascism in American history, in U.S. history, and uh, argue that Europe borrows a lot from U.S. racial relations uh, and the situation in the United States. And the Marxist analysis applies is, is what Du Bois uses for the U.S. context. He says poor whites are split from poor blacks because uh, because they're, they've been tricked by whiteness, the psychological wages of whiteness, into supporting rich whites. And that is the fascist. And he uses the term fascist, fascism for that in the book. So, so, so it, it is my conception of fascism. It's just that fascism involves a culture funded by you know, the f financial and industrial forces that profit from breaking apart labor movements. Uh, it's a culture that, that puts primacy on the color, the skin, your skin color, shared skin color, rather than shared class interests. So then the question really becomes is, are we talking about a move towards fascism or are we talking about, at least in the U.S. context, a return to fascist roots? Uh, in the U.S. context, we're talking, I think, about a return to fascist roots. Although when you look at the 1930s fascists, like, say, Father Coughlin, they were much more, uh, their preferred policies were more in line with how Donald Trump ran in 1945. So, the, in, in, sorry, it ran, ran in 2016. So Donald Trump ran as a kind of ethno-nationalist social democrat saying that he's going to do a big infrastructure bill, saying that he was going to preserve entitlement programs, uh, you know, go after, uh, you know, uh, attack corruption. So Father Coughlin called for, uh, you know, Father Coughlin was behind the New Deal programs. But what we've got now is we've got this, this and, and also right now we've got a return to the kind of isolationism of the 1930s fascism. So a different European fascism, German fascism, was expansionist and colonialist. But American fascism, it's a return to our roots, our conception of fascism, because American fascism was isolationist. This was the America First movement. They didn't want us to enter the war, and they didn't want us to enter the war, World War II, because, as Charles Lindbergh said, you know, we are the white race is allied. We should be allied with other whites against uh, uh, against you know the the 
I forget exactly how he puts it, but against other races. Isn't it um, interesting? Isn't that interesting, though, this sort of, I don't know what the word would be, duality or something between, uh, you know, the United States' isolationism versus, say, Nazi German expansion, expansionism. And yet within the domestic context, the United States is an expansionist, colonialist power. I mean, the dispossession of the natives, the manifest destiny, et cetera, et cetera. So really the very concept of Lebensraum, as we understand it in the Nazi context, really is typically American. Absolutely. And Hitler gets it from America. The whole... Uh, I mean, Hitler's second book is very clear about this. He, his vision is, uh, he's influenced by Manifest Destiny, by the push to the West. Uh, of course, Germany was suffused with a kind of romanticism for cowboys and, and Westerns and the novels of Karl May. And so, uh, so absolutely, the, the, uh, the expansionist uh, empire building of the United States uh, does influence the German case, as does the antebellum South, which was a model for Ukraine. Hitler wanted to conquer Ukraine and to create uh, large plantations with Ukrainian slaves, enslaved Ukrainians and German overseers. So yeah, you're absolutely right. And of course, lately, we have a very, Trump ran with very fascist, uh, with a very fascist message of decline of empire. We once were great. Uh, we once were, um, our military was great. Fascism involves, fascism always involves venerating certain institutions, particularly the military and private business, but the military first, uh, as models for society. Because fascism orders things with a leader uh, over everyone and everyone doing what the leader says and complete loyalty up the hierarchical chain. And that's how the military works. We've gotten so used to the uh, watching the State of the Union with row after row of generals uh, there, which was something that I don't remember from previous States of the Union. The way the military is put front, front and center, center in all of these regimes we're talking about, Brazil, the United States, uh, India, uh, the way the military is, is made into the, the main institution is a clue that we're not dealing with democracy anymore. We're dealing with fascism. Absolutely right. So let's take a quick break. On the other side of the break, I want to finish up this conversation about fascism, and I want to talk about some of the other work that, that you're doing right now, which, of course, relates to all of this. I'm going to continue the conversation with Jason Stanley on the other side of the break. You're listening to Counterpunch Radio. We'll be right back.
And we're back here on Counterpunch Radio. I'm chatting with Jason Stanley. Again, the book, uh, 2018, How Fascism Works, The Politics of Us and Them. It really is one that has to be on your bookshelf. Now, um, the last point, uh, just before the break, I I, I wanted to follow up um, with one additional question. And this kind of maybe is for some of the people who haven't read your book, but also as a refresher. Can you talk a little bit about the role that truth or untruth plays in fascism? Because time and again, we're seeing this cropping up in, in, in our own uh, election in 2020. We're seeing this all over the world. There's reports, and I know you're going to be headed down to Brazil soon. Uh, friends of mine who I've spoken with, who I've had on this show, who talked about the way in which fake news was spread on WhatsApp and these other mobile applications to be able to kind of help Bolsonaro into power. I want to just explore a little bit, if we could, and from, you know, with your philosophical background, what is truth in the context of fascism? It's a great question. And there's an important new book by Federico Finkelstein called A Brief History of Fascist Lying, which is explores this question. Fascism has a very particular relationship to truth that differs from the relationship liberalism has to truth. Now, you don't want to characterize that relationship by saying fascist politicians lie, because all politicians lie. It is not distinctive of fascism that that it involves fascist lying. Uh, so uh, so uh, a good way, a good way into this maybe to con- consider the distinction between the lies the Bush administration engaged in to lay the basis of the invasion of Iraq and the kind of lies we're experiencing today from figures like Donald Trump. So the, let's go back to 2003 and remember what the Bush administration tried to do. The Bush administration lied to deceive us, right? They, they cleverly lied. So there was a press briefing with Donald Rumsfeld, I think February 4th, 2003. And Rumsfeld replied when asked by a reporter about an explicit denial by Saddam Hussein of any relationship with Al-Qaeda. He said, and Abraham Lincoln was short. Now, think about that. He's not lying. He's, he was asked, a reporter says, d- said, Saddam Hussein denies any relationship with Al-Qaeda. And he says, and Abraham Lincoln was short. So he's not lying. He's not saying Saddam Hussein had a direct relationship with Al-Qaeda. He's rather saying, he's rather saying something misleading. He's misleading you. They were trying to deceive us. They were trying to trick us. Uh, they were like manufacturing evidence for weapons of mass destruction. But when someone's trying to deceive you, they still are respecting that you're a rational agent who can accept, uh, who can assess evidence. That's not what's going on now. Donald Trump has, in, fa- in fascism, and it's not just Trump, it's, it's all of these people like Bolsonaro as well. In fascism, you say it's all a friend-enemy distinction. It's all uh, me or the opponents. And truth is irrelevant. Truth is irrelevant because, you know, the opponent, the truth is only relevant if it helps you, you know. So uh, if truth is a, a friend-enemy distinction destroys truth because it's, it's hard to think in terms uh, of black and white if, if, true, if you both take yourself to be responsible to truth. Because if you make a point that's true and relevant, I have to concede it if I respect truth. 
But what fascists do is they destroy truth. So it's all about just us versus them. And if it's all about us versus them, you just lie your head off. It doesn't matter. The truth doesn't matter at all. It's just winning that matters. It's all about winning instead. And if it's all about winning, then, and you know, why should you care about whether or not you say something untrue? So you destroy the basis for truth. Uh, you make truth utterly irrelevant. When truth is utterly irrelevant, all that matters is power and all that matters is what side you're on. Um, so that's what fascist lying is. Fascist lying is a kind of straightforward, uh, like for instance, today with Trump and the coronavirus, he basically just utterly lied about the administration's response to the coronavirus. Uh, he will he will run in 2020 as he ran in 2016. I'm convinced, claiming you know like Bernie Sanders, you know if he's running against Biden, uh, he'll say, oh you know I'll never touch the entitlement programs. Uh, you know I'm all about the middle class and and helping the worker, even though it, his signature achievement is a 1.5 trillion dollar tax cut. There's no for for the wealthy. There's no in fascist lying. It, you know, you're free to just say whatever you want. Um, and that is is a central way in which our political culture has changed. And that's a fascist political culture. In fascist political culture, truth has no role. So the only response to that, and I, I would just want to hear how you would respond to that, is that if I were a Trumpist, the word that I would use to describe the process or the, the effect of what you're describing, I would say, well, that's refreshing. And I think that's an important aspect of all of this, that Donald Trump's lies are somehow seen as an antidote to everything that came before. Absolutely. So I cover this in, my, in a piece I published on November 4th, 2016, the weekend before the election, called Beyond Lying, Donald Trump's Authoritarian Rhetoric, where I castigated the media for thinking that Donald Trump will be punished for his lies. I was, my point was, his supporters like the lies. <laughs> you can't keep on saying, oh, look, he said something false. His supporters like that he lies uh, because, you know, for them, he's getting away with it. He's showing he's winning. He's winning. But he's uh, also uh, speaking the unspeakable truths. That's the uh, that's the real, I think, gem in all of that, right? That liberalism and political correctness and all of these things have have stifled all of these uh, the, these uh, tendencies, these ideas, these expressions. And Donald Trump gives voice to them. Absolutely. All of these movements are attacks on, quote unquote, political correctness. They try to represent political correctness as a kind of like communist authoritarianism or socialism. And they say you need a strong leader to rescue you from the threat of political correctness. And it's kind of shocking because in World War II, in, in, the, in, 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 in Germany in the 20s and the 30s, you did, have, you did have Bolsheviks. You did have actual real communist authoritarianism. And it was a threat to democracy. Uh, so, uh, but now, People are, are, you know, it's, it's uh, you know, people are giving up on democracy because a strong leader will protect them from the pronoun police. So it's, it's remarkable. Um, but uh, but uh, that's right. All of these movements, they're all anti-political correctness movements. And they're all about how, uh, you know, we have to, uh, we, you know, they're trying to, the new form of Marxism is cultural Marxism. 
It's they're no longer just trying to steal your house. They're trying to change you and shape you and make you accept gays and transgender uh, uh, and transgender. Um, they're coming viewpoints. for your kids. They're coming for your kids. Right. They're coming for your kids and uh, the the immigrants. Uh, the you know the the immigrants, the 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 feminists, the transgender activists. You know they're coming for your kids. You need a strong leader to protect you. So uh, so and the shattering of norms. Uh, political correctness is just another word for democracy, really, because political correctness says treat everyone with equal respect. And democ liberal democracy is involves two ideals: uh, equality and liberty. And equality is involves treating everyone with equal respect. So it's absolutely right. It, you can see it, uh, that these movements are attacking quote unquote political correctness. That is, they're attacking liberal democracy. They're attacking equal respect. And they're saying what fascists have always said, which is that the real truth is that some are better than others. The real truth is that uh, is that uh, you know equality is a myth. Yeah, and and the other question to really ask in all of this is is whether or not this is actually something new for us here in in the United States because you know uh, the left in the U.S. I mean it exists to some extent but not really not in a real way so it seems that Donald Trump and the and and the fascists have really manufactured a fake left that they can attack because the people that they actually call the left are certainly not left They're by any normal standards would be center right. So the very idea that there is a left coming after you is of course, totally bogus. Totally bogus. They would say, Oh, the, they, like, like it, like was said and under in like Hitler goes on in Mein Kampf, the universities are taken over by the left. I mean, the universities are taken over by a bunch of people who would have been moderate Republicans, uh, you know, 30 years ago. Uh, the the uh, the media, you know, there's there's hardly any Sanders supporters at Yale University. Uh, there there are at other universities, but universities are class. Universities are part of the world. They're divided by class. So there's there's. Um, there's poor universities and, and rich universities, and you see Sanders supporters uh, among adjuncts, among graduate students, and you see, uh, you know, uh, Buttigieg uh, supporters uh, among uh, wealthier faculty. Um, so, uh, so yeah, they try to create this panic. They try to create a, a manufactured left. More generally, so there's the political correctness thing. There's the trying to make you afraid of you know, the leftist domination of universities, and they try to sort of take universities out and present some some examples of accesses and take them to be, and say, this is what your life will be like if, if the left win. Then uh, the other move is to call everyone a socialist. So they called Barack Obama a socialist, and he was a Republican. So, you know, they're gonna call, you know, Trump manufactured, this is the skill of the Republican Party. I mean. In 2016, Trump said that the cities are are, are burning and and there's a crime wave. I mean, it was 2016 was one of the safest years in in, in history, uh, in in recorded history of in terms of uh, crime in the United States. Mm -hmm. So they invented in. This is what's so frustrating about the current wave 
uh, of movements. It's even more extreme in Sweden. The Sweden, Dem Sweden Democrats are the most popular party in Sweden by polls, the fascist party, the Sweden Democrats. And Sweden has does, does not have a failure of institutions. Uh, they have incredibly well-functioning institutions. There's not economic anxiety. Uh, there's no failure, endemic corruption and failure of leadership has arguably happened in response to the financial crisis. And yet the fascist party has successfully raised panic that the left is taking over and you need a strong a strong leader to respond. I really do. I really do want to talk about the politics of language, your new project. But I got one final question I want to ask on this on this fascism issue that we've been discussing. And that is, I want to give you uh, an opportunity to respond, if you could, to uh, some variation of a, you know, argument that I hear from time to time, that Donald Trump really represents simply a taking off of the mask, right? That Donald Trump is not an aberration, that Donald Trump is nothing really all that new or out of step with the continuum of history of the United States, but rather that he simply, quote unquote, says the quiet part out loud, that he is the nakedly racist, nakedly aggressive version of the racist and aggressive ruling class that we've had all along. Um, I want to give you a chance to sort of break that down in some sense or respond to that, whether you agree, disagree, or somewhere in the middle. So I agree with that to a large extent, and my work justifies that my work says you know i don't think i don't think my, in my work fascism is something that we're always struggling with certainly in the united states but also in any society uh the tendency to valorize the dominant ethnic group to view men as better than women as well not men as to, the the tendency to endorse traditional gender roles uh, shall we say which in and of itself is not fascist uh, because you know social conservatism is not fascism, but fascism includes social conservatism. So you have these elements. You have uh, white. Um, you have white supremacy in the United States. Uh, long history of that. Scientific racism, which is coming back again, the, with the Charles Murray being. You know, it's it's Charles Murray uh, who is a uh, who is a scientific racist who's being held up as the model uh, now for what's wrong with universities. Not an, They don't venerate Charles Murray enough. Uh, they object to Charles Murray. So scientific racism, racial hierarchy, um, all of this is, is central to the history of the United States. And Donald Trump is a throwback to that. He's also a throwback to various demagogues we've had in history. And he's explicitly referencing that. That's why he says, says he wants to make America great again. He wants to return us to a time when uh, we were going in that direction. Right. But, yep. but that said, he, he has a kind of personal um, corruption and utter disregard for the rule of law and utter disregard for, uh, for, for pretending, <laughs> let's say, uh, that uh, that is not in our history as much. Um, Nixon might have approximated that, but Trump has really ripped the doors down. So someone who is a social conservative and a white supremacist, you could still imagine that they would have some respect for the rule of law. They wouldn't be this corrupt. They wouldn't seek to 
use the machinery of the state to target their political opponent. So there is that extra bit, which is a significant extra bit. Yes, indeed. And just to give voice to some uh, people who are obviously not on the line who might uh, make this point, uh, things like COINTELPRO, the attacks on the activists and uh, radicals, leftists in the 1960s, 1970s, the Klan, many other examples of a lot of these things that we're talking about. So I know some of my radical friends, including uh, people who were involved in those movements in the 60s and 70s, really, in, in some senses, don't see Donald Trump as as much of a threat as many white liberals do simply because they see Donald Trump as the expression of what they've always dealt with. Absolutely. But I think they're wrong. <laughs> they're wrong because, uh, I mean, it's tricky. It's tricky. Uh, they're right. They're of course right that he is an expression of, he is, of America with its mask off. And that is, but that is fascism. That is uh, fascism is always ultranationalism. So, you know, when fascism comes to the United States, it'll be wrapped in the American flag. That's the point. Um, Sinclair Lewis. And uh, so uh, so this is American fascism. But where Trump goes further is his utter disregard for uh, for the separation of powers, for uh, for the things that would rein in uh, uh a, a one-party takeover of the United States. And I think what we face is we face a one-party takeover of the United States. We face the end of our uh, multi-party system. Um, we, see, we face a minority party that is, going, that is seeking to take full control over all the branches of government. And that's new. In the few minutes that we have remaining, I just wanted to talk a little bit about your new project, which is really fascinating to me and certainly outside of my area of expertise. Uh, you're working on a, a book on, well, I'm going to read it directly from the website here, on a non-ideal philosophy of language. The Politics of Language is being co-authored with David Beaver and uh, will come out at some point in the near future from Princeton University Press. Tell us a little bit about The Politics of Language. What is this project? What are you guys working on? So uh, uh, too much of the science of communication is idealized. It involves thinking about a speaker and an audience. The speaker says something, communicates some information. The audience gets the information, updates their beliefs, says something back. That's great, and it is important to understand how when I want to go to a restaurant and I stop you in the street and ask you, where's the restaurant? I want to go to a restaurant. It's important to understand how you w information can exchange there when we're both trying to be cooperative. But political communication doesn't work like that. When politicians talk, they're addressing multiple audiences. They want one audience to get one thing, another audience to get another thing, to get different messages. And if you just think about one speaker and one audience, you're not gonna be able to account for that. Take, for example, dog whistles. Like we're getting, we have an intense dog whistle politics right now. And uh, so a dog whistle, I don't like the term at all, uh, but a dog whistle is, is a term like welfare, say, that uh, wh when you talk about, uh, when, you t when you talk about, you know, or inner city, you know, people in the inner city have a laziness problem. That's a dog whistle, a racist dog whistle. It communicates to people who are inclined towards racism, that black 
Americans are lazy. Uh, a dog whistle communicates one message to one group and another message to another group, like an actual dog whistle, which dogs can hear but humans can't. Now, I don't like the term dog whistle because uh, it's not how dog whistle poly, it's not a good you know, uh, uh, expression, description of, of how that kind of politics works. I think the way that kind of politics works is there are three audiences. There's an audience that hears the message that doesn't hear the message. Then there's an audience that does hear the message and doesn't like it. So when they hear there's a problem of laziness in the inner city, they know it's about them and they don't like it. And then there's a third audience that hears the message and likes it and likes it because they know there's an audience that hears it and doesn't like it. So what we get in our politics when, say, Josh Hawley gets up and denounces cosmopolitanism and globalism and everyone says, well, that's, you know, anti-Semitic talk, uh, he can say, no, it's not anti-Semitic talk. What are you doing? What are you talking about? And then all the people who are inclined to be anti-Semites can nevertheless enjoy it um, because it's signaling something to them. Uh, and he can deny that he meant that. And... Uh, and, and we're getting a lot of that politics lately, but you can't figure out how dog whistles work if you're just thinking about one speaker and one audience. You need to think about the different effects one linguistic message has on, on different audiences and how those audiences relate to each other. Um, how there's a lot of pleasure that Trump supporters get in owning the libs. Well, what does owning the libs mean? It means that Trump says something that's deeply offensive, uh, you know, like a barely covert dog whistle or just a really offensive thing. And then he denies that he said meant he denies that it had that message. And and then, you know, liberals go get say, oh, that was anti-Semitic. And and then everyone gets very excited. Uh, and, and not only so, not only is it the denial of having said it, it's then the transformation of him as the aggressor to him as the victim, right? So he exactly. gets to, he gets to play the victim as being deliberately misinterpreted, deliberately distorted by the liberals, by the media, by CNN, etc. Brilliant, Eric. Yes, and this is the linguistic phenomenon. These are the kinds of linguistic phenomena that we feel need explaining that are not, you can't really explain how this whole process of dog whistle politics works. Um, uh, from, from message that is clearly sends one message to one group and another group is offended by it, but if the offended group uh, makes their offense known, then they'll be represented as, as attacking, being a mob, attacking the person who said it, and then that person can be a, a martyr. Exactly right. So we're, we're going to have to leave it there, but I'm really excited for the politics of language. That's something for everyone to look forward to. I really recommend you follow Jason on Twitter. He is a great follow. Lots of really interesting, stimulating discussions. Uh, he's on Twitter at Jason Intrator. That's I-N-T-R-A. T-O-R, uh, the book, the 2018 book, How Fascism Works, The Politics of Us and Them. That's from Penguin Random House. I highly recommend that book as well. Jason, thanks again for coming on Counterpunch. Thanks so much, Eric. Always great to talk. Listeners, thank you as always, and we will chat again real soon.